This is the Om song from Paramahansa Yogananda's Cosmic Chants. On booming breaks, all earth, all heaven, all body shakes. The bumblebee now hums along. Baby Om doth softly sing his song. From Krishna's flute, the call is sweet. Tis time the watery god to me. Cords bound to flesh are broken all Vibrations burst and meteors fall The hustling heart, the boasting breath No more shall cause the yogi's death The god of fire with fervor sings Om, Om his joyous harp now rings. Prana, God with power sounds. The wondrous bells the soul resounds. All nature lies in darkness soft. The star divine is seen aloft. Subconscious dreams have gone to bed. Tis then that one doth hear Om's tread. Oh, upward climb the living tree. Hark to the cosmic symphony. From Om, the soundless roar from Om. The call for light or dark to roam From Om, the music of the spheres From Om, the mist of nature's tears All things of earth and heaven declare Om, Om, resounding everywhere of the spheres from all the mist of nature's tears all things of earth and heaven declare om om resound in Welcome, everybody, to this morning's Saturday talk. 
Traditionally, on the Saturday following pre-initiation on Friday night, we typically take this topic every year, Korean action. And this morning, we have uh, here joining us today, we have Naiswami Pranaba and Naiswami Hriman. And my name is Naiswami Jaya. And it's my pleasure to be here with you to share with you this morning. It's been quite an interesting week, and I think probably all of us, if I'm sure all of us, have found it very inspiring. And I'm sure the thing that we'll take back with us is we'll remember these stories. Now, sometimes the philosophy tends to fade when we go home. What did they say? And, but the stories are, are what stick with us, and they uh, capture us. And I think in hearing all of these stories during this past week, you realize that Swamiji was a very busy man. <laughs> How many people he had these relationships with, reaching out, touching so many souls. You have no idea. And we're just a small proportion of those. There's probably many, many, many more. So today I do want to speak on this topic, Korean action, but I'd like to begin with the story. I'll add another, another one. Um, and as some of you know who have lived here, and some perhaps don't know who have not had the longer history here, is years ago, Sadna Devi and I served as village property managers here in the 1980s, early 90s. And in those days, uh, as we were doing the job of the day-to-day -day affairs of the village, uh, working with the people in the village, what would I would do, I made it a habit of every month, maybe sometimes it'd be every two months, I would write a one-page report summarizing to Swamiji uh, what was happening in the village, things that were going on, situations and things that he might find of interest so that he would be kept informed of what was happening here. And as we've listened this week, I remember one of the stories earlier in the week mentioning how, illustrating in a very colorful way, how Swami did not like to hear complaints. And particularly, he didn't like to hear complaints about other people or criticism of that type of thing. Well, I made the mistake once uh, at one of my reports. I was telling him about various things that were going on in the village, this or that. And I was having a difficult time at, at, at that point with a certain individual. And uh, this individual, in my opinion at least, was acting badly. And I, you know, I was, you know, I didn't know what to do about it. And I was grumpy about it. And so I, I happened to mention this in, in my report, by the way, so-and-so and so-and-so, you know, and went on. And usually, Swami didn't usually reply to these reports. They were somewhat business reports. He didn't really, you know, respond. Occasionally, he would want further information, but usually not. But in this one uh, report I sent him, a couple of days later, he sent me a short response. And I very much appreciated it. And I, since that day, I've kept it, actually. It's, you know, how on your computer you can have a little digital sticky note, 
and I've put it in a sticky note. It's on my computer screen, and I can call it up from time to time when I need it. And I'd like to, I'd just like to read it. It's very, it's very short. Jaya. <laughs> May I make a suggestion? <laughs> now, see, now, he's going to give me a suggestion, but notice how he asked my permission right off the bat. He's not imposing this. He says, May I make a suggestion? To win people, you need to be more than utterly fair, but also to win their hearts by making them feel you are their loyal and true friend. It is with your heart, above all, that you'll succeed. I very much appreciated that. Swami led with his heart. I mean, many of us have said that. And when he saw somebody who was having trouble, who was, let's say, acting badly. <laughs> if, if he saw somebody acting badly, he didn't. His first approach wasn't to scold or to criticize or to ostracize or wish that person would just go away. It wasn't that at all. His, his approach was to make that person his friend. He embraced them. And in, if he saw that they were sincere devotee and they loved God, he embraced them, made them their friend, gave them energy, and thereby helped uplift them. And I think as any of us who find ourselves dealing with people and all the problems that go with that, and also in a position of leadership, that it's something good to remember. Lead with the heart, and it's with the heart that ultimately we'll succeed. Reach out to one another as friends. Well, I want to segue from that, just a little story to set the tone for this topic of Korean action. I think you could say that Swami himself was the personification of Kriya in action. Kriyananda, bliss through doing, bliss in motion, which by the way is what Swami defined love is bliss, move, bliss in movement. And that was who he was. He was, he was Kriya in action. Now when he went to India some years ago, about 10 years ago, 2003. He shifted to India, and that story's been told of how that came about. And while he was in India, not long after arriving there, he was asked by uh, people naturally, here you've come to India, you're a Westerner, you've come to India, what is the purpose? Why have you come? And he said it's something very simple. He said, I've come to India to make my guru's name and his message better known in the land of his birth. Now, in India, people know about, about Paramahansa Yogananda for sure. He's a, he's, he's a known figure. I can't say he's well known to the general public, but certainly to those people in the yoga movement, he's known. But I think Swami perceived something that I have in, in my years there also perceived. I don't think devotees or disciples uh, of our path or of other paths particularly understand Yogananda's true greatness and his true message and the message that he was trying to bring into the world, what he was bringing. 
And this is what set, I think, Swamiji apart. He understood completely what Master was intending. And he saw the greatness in Master. He saw the potential of what could be. And Master recognized in Swami someone who did understand and who was in tune and who was receptive and consequently gave him those responsibilities, gave him that training, gave him the foundation so that one day he would be able to express these teachings and take these out, these teachings out. And in a sense, you could say Swamiji was the personification of Master's teachings. He outwardly expressed them in his life and he taught them and shared them on a world stage. Swamiji has many times said this to us. His feeling was that Paramahansa Yogananda was the guru of Dwapara Yuga. He was the guru of this new age. Now, when I first heard that many years ago, when he said that, I thought, well, that was a, something that a, a disciple, a faithful disciple would say of his guru. Every disciple loves his guru. But yet, I've come to understand that Swami had perceived a truth, that Master was the, is, in my feeling as well, the guru of this Dwapara Yuga, certainly the guru who is introducing this new age into the world. And Swami, understanding that, was able to express that in his teachings and in and sharing Master's teachings with other people. Now, if you were to be one who wanted to represent Master's teachings in this way out into the world, what would be a teaching that is appropriate for Dwapara Yuga? Now, somebody once asked Master, maybe it was Swami even actually, is this a new religion? And Yogananda said, no, it's not a new religion. It's a new expression. And so what might, that exp what might a Dwapara Yuga expression be? And I think if we look at Swami and we look at these teachings, we'll get a clue. Now, I'd like to preface that by saying Dwapara Yuga is an age of energy. Now, Dwapara Yuga in the relative scheme of all of the Yugas is not necessarily a high age. It's an age of energy, but yes, it also energy can express in restlessness. And if you were to, if you were to look at the ages, Kali Yuga, Satya Yuga, Treta Yuga, and so forth, in terms of development, like uh, an individual child developing uh, from childhood into adulthood, you would say that Dwapara Yuga is an age, it's an ego-active age. It's an, age, it's an egoic age. Now, when I use this term ego, which I will again, I don't mean it in a pejorative sense. I mean it in the sense of ego is an identity that I am the doer. I'm the doer. And wouldn't you say that, that is, uh, uh, in this age, that's the common feeling, that's the common attitude? Now, if you were to pick a country, <laughs> you know what's coming. 
If you were to pick a country to serve as a platform for a world mission that is going to introduce teachings in an ego-active age, might you not pick an ego-active country? What one might that be? <laughs> now, again, I don't mean this in a, in, in a pejorative sense. America is ego-active. It's egoic. I am the doer. But Master appreciated qualities of America. He appreciated. He appreciated Americans' quality of get the job done. Someday, someday. Why not now? Do it now. He, he appreciated the energy. He appreciated that willingness to embark on new adventures, uh, that, uh, that expansive energetic spirit. I will will reason, I will will, I will act. It's high as prayer. America has that side down of the prayer. <laughs> but we know there's another side as well. And that's what Master brought. But guide thou my reason, will, and activity to the highest in all that I do. And that's what Master brought. He brought that that sense of the little self, not suppressing, as a, you perhaps might be in a Kali Yuga age, not downgrading, humiliating of the ego, but expanding our sense of self, that little self, to embrace all. And you see this, if you look at Master's teachings, you see this as a character of Yogananda's path and of Yogananda's mission. And you might think, people, uh, people often think of Yogananda as, oh yes, he's just one more in a long list of saints. And of course, he's from India, and India's got a very long list of saints. He's just one more in that long list. But if you look closely, what Master taught is not like what all those other saints are teaching. I don't mean to downgrade that at all of what they're teaching, but Master had a unique approach, if you look closely, that is appropriate for this age in which we're entering now. And Swamiji demonstrated that through his life and also through what he taught. Now let's look at some of the things in Master's teaching. I will will, I will act, I will reason. Some of the stories that are very famous, Swami would, talk, would, would speak about, my blessings are there, God's blessings are there, it's your blessings that are missing to the, to the, uh, to the disciple who was complaining a little bit. He was asking that, that disciple, your blessings are missing, you have to act. Or again, to the other disciple who, who said, well, you can do it, Master. He says, yes, but what do you think made me a Master? It was by doing. He and he inspired the disciples. He inspired people to act, to do. And that sense of doing, who does? I do. I do. I have to rise up. I have to call upon God. I have to, I have to put this into action. Look at his whispers from eternity. Prayer demands. I demand you to come to me. Well, who am I to be demanding of God? 
<laughs> but Master said, no, the devotee demands. It's again the putting out of that energy. What is one of the first things that we teach people coming in as the foundation of all of our techniques? Energization exercises. I will will. It's the will. The energization exercises are not about some physical movements only. They're primarily to strengthen the will. Whose will? My will. But ultimately, my job is to attune my will to God's will. But you start with the little self empowering that, strengthening that, expanding that, until ultimately it embraces all. And this was Swami's way. And this is, if you look at Swami's life, what got him into trouble. With some of his gurubhais, SRF, they accused him. A colossal egotist. Because he chose to act. He chose to follow his guru's teachings and perhaps not those of his superiors. Which one was he a disciple of? Of his guru. He expressed those teachings, but he was misunderstood. He was acting from self-interest. But yet Swamiji knew that this is what Master was teaching. We must act. We must take this uh, forward. Now, one more example. In India, when we chant. Typically in India, the a typical form of chanting in India, uh, you could call it, uh, it's called by different names, but Ram Nam, Hari Nam type chanting, the singing of God's name. It's very nice, very good. It's expiring. It's, it's got centuries and well, perhaps millennium of tradition behind it. Beautiful. Master didn't do that. His form of chanting was different. What he took is affirmations and set them to music and repeated those until they became superconscious. His form of chanting was very different from what the tradition is. And if you look at his chants, I will make thee pole star of my life. And Swami following that very same tradition, I am free, I am free in myself. I am free. Very different, very different. And people, and sometimes people, why don't you do it this way or that way? It's not master's way. We, we follow master's tradition. And so you see this repeated again and again in master's, in master's work and in Swami following and how he expressed the teachings are perfectly in alignment with what his guru intended. That this expansion of this little self into ultimately forgetting the self entirely, going beyond the self to be able to ultimately embrace that there is no little self. The tiny bubble of laughter has become the sea of mirth itself. This is what Swami, that is an expression of Swami in his life, that tiny bubble of laughter has become the sea of mirth itself. Now, I have heard it said, I don't know if it's true, that some editors of that very poem of Samadhi wanted to tone it down. 
because, oh, it's, it sounds too egoic. Tone it down, Master, tone it down. People won't understand. But in this day and age, we must understand that it's, it's a call to action. And Kriya is a call to action. Kriya in action is our spiritual duty as an expression of discipleship to master to express that. But ultimately, it's not to express that little self. It's to express ultimately to forget that little self, become that sea of mirth itself and in the forgetfulness of our little egoic self of that little preoccupations that all of us have, that ultimately we are free. We are free. And this is what Swami epitomized in his life. He was the perfect disciple to spread Master's message. Because as far as I am concerned, he understood it very, the very best. And that's why Master gave him that job. That's my Master and gave him the power to be able to accomplish so much of what he did in his life is because Master foresaw that of all the disciples, all expressing probably very good qualities, he was the one who had those particular qualities that we'd be able to carry this message out in this age that we find ourselves in now. Look for yourself. If you're those of us who share the teachings with others in India, we have lots of uh, many young teachers coming up now. And I ask them all, I say, introspect, look at our teachings. What makes them, what distinguishes them? Even a teaching of meditation, I say, we don't teach meditation. Our meditation is not like every other path of meditation. We're do it's not passive, it's active. We raise the energy and concentration toward the point between the eyebrows. We use that positive engagement. We don't, we're not, we're not merely sitting watching our thoughts. We're engaging. And it's very different. We put our attention at the point between the eyebrows. How many other paths do that so actively as we emphasize? Very few. And what is this center here? This is the center of will. We use the will, but in the right way. I will reason, I will will, I will act, but guide thou my reason, will, and activity to the highest in everything. Now I'm going to close with just a short story also. Uh, the, some uh, few years ago, Swamiji was uh, in the hospital. He was in the hospital and he came out of the hospital and uh, Nai Swami Dhyana and I were there uh, and went to visit. Uh, he was in Pune at that time, and we were in Gurgaon, and we'd come down to Pune, and uh, we couldn't see Swami immediately because he was in the hospital, and it was they weren't letting people go in there. But then very shortly before we were going to go, he knew we were going back to Gurgaon. He called us, and he says, oh, before you go, I want to see you. Please come, come to visit. And by this time, they had let him out of the hospital, and he was in a hotel in the city. And so Dion and I went to the hotel, and uh, Dharmadas and Nirmala were there, and one or two others. And uh, Swami came out of his room, and we went to a little sitting area to have tea. And Swami came out, and he, he wanted to send us off with the blessing. And we had come for a blessing. He wanted to send us off for a blessing. And 
he came and he sat with us and he started to talk, but he couldn't go more than a half a sentence. And he would, he was in a bliss state. He was in a bliss state. He couldn't go more than half a, half a sentence and he would drift into, and you could see he was just gone. And he would come back and he would try, and he would, he would and he, this went for about 20 minutes. And he was, he was just, he was ecstatic. And he was giving us advice at that time and telling us a few things about his life. And one of the things that I'd like to share, just two things that he said. And he said, when I was thrown out of SRF, I was, uh, didn't know what to do. I had thought that Master had rejected me. That thought crossed his, let me say it differently, that thought had crossed his mind that perhaps Master had rejected him. And then he said, even if Master had rejected me, I resolved, Master, you may reject me, but I will never reject you. I will never reject you. And he, then he went on to describe, he says, in a sense of, he's going to, like, holding on. He was just, I will never let you go. And, of course, while he was doing this, of course, you could start to see tears coming uh, to his eyes. And then, as we were going, about to go, he gave us a blessing. He gave us a blessing. And he said something that I think is meant for all of us. All of us. He said, it's not enough to share the teachings, to give people the teachings. You must give them bliss. You must give them bliss. And I think all of us here this week, we felt a touch of Swami's bliss. And I think when we go home, we may not remember the teaching of the philosophy, but I think we will remember and carry with us that bliss we feel of Swamiji's. Many blessings. I want to thank the Bhakti brothers for the uh, Om song they did, and I hope they will record it. It's very well done. I also hope our friends from India feel very welcome here because every time I sniff around here, I feel like I'm in New Delhi on a good day. So um, get used to it. One of the Swamiji did for our work among many and it took so many different forms, but on this particular way expanded our horizons. I remember so many years ago when to go to town, meaning Nevada City, Grass Valley, would something would one would do every two weeks and would be fearful one for one's spiritual life because of all the temptations that lay there. And then a few years later, he opened up the Sacramento Center and then San Francisco and, and uh, of course, toured, toured the country in the late 70s, early 80s, which was near, nearly scandalous to the little community here, self-protective as we were. I remember we lived in town after the forest fire and although it grew to be some 40 people at one point, I recall people sidling up to me and looking like there had to be something wrong with me for living in Nevada City, as if it were some Sodom or Gomorrah, I don't know, but 
seem pretty tame from my point of view. But he's expanded our horizons eventually to Italy, to India, and now we really think not that much of, of that. Well, he's expanded a lot more than that, our hearts, of course. It, I waited over 30 years before I had the courage, and perhaps more to the point, the humility, to ask him for a spiritual name. I felt finally it was right somehow. But of course, I didn't want to bother all my friends. It's such a nuisance. And how? what am my wife, what's Padma going to say when, you know, how is she going to adapt to that and my children? I was visiting my brother the other day and uh, he said, you know, uh, I know you're, how do you say it, Raymond? And, uh, but you know, I just have a hard time. I said, don't worry about it. It's, it's fine. So I really didn't want to bother anybody with his name. So Swami was very solicitous, solicitous and kind, and he offered this name, Raymond. I said, well, is that okay? Do you think you, you can work with that? And, you know, he could have called me Jagadumbo, and I, <laughs> I would have taken it by that point. But, okay, Raymond, you know, and it means humility and modesty and this sort of thing. And I said, well, that's an obvious affirmation, but um, seems like a good one. In, in any case, but, but the irony is that um, nobody can say it in America, and far from being not a nuisance to anybody, I have to repeat it many times a day and spell it worse yet. And, um, I, and yet, not only have I not found one Indian, you say, oh yeah, my cousin, Hreeman, yeah. <laughs> I can't find it anywhere. So, so far, far from being unnoticeable, it's been nothing but an object of notice. But... But there it is. His name is Jaya, has said, Kriya Nanda. I know there's somebody else with that name in America, but I believe that up until Swami took that name and taking his sannyas vows in the 50s as Swami Kriya Nanda, I don't believe there was any Swami with the name Kriya Nanda. And as Jaya has pointed out, as we all know from reading chapter 26 of the Autobiography of a Yogi, the word Kriya is related to karma, to action. And Swamiji was told by our guru, master, your life is a life of service. And then he paused, comma, and meditation. We also know in our self-honest moments that probably few of us are can profitably engage in a life of 8, 12, 16-hour days of continuous meditation like Ram Gopal Muzumdar. And so our life is a life of bringing Kriya into action. In a way, you could say Kriya is living at our center in divine attunement. It's a generic word, and I, I've said before and in other circumstances, it puzzled me for many years, and I can't say that I've come to any ground on it particularly deep, but it's puzzled me for many years why we, why Lahiri, perhaps Babaji, called it simply Kriya. It means, realistically, when you're in India using the term, it doesn't mean much more than the word technique, as opposed to bhakti, perhaps, or karma yoga and, and jnana yoga, then okay, we use a pranayama, a meditation technique. But surely it must be something more than, what about talabya kriya, or navi kriya, and on and on. There's all these different kriyas, 
that one can do. And so, in trying to explore what that has meant, and, you know, and also I've come to realize, or finally I've threw in the towel, and because I hear it so often from new students that, oh yes, you can, you can find the Kriya technique, it's out there, it's in books and the internet and all that stuff. I said, okay, I, do I really have to look into this? Because there are so many, in fact, so many versions and forms of Kriya, and yes, they are out there. You do remember in the chapter, um, The Blissful Devotee, I think it's called, uh, Master Mahashai, who was, in fact, a disciple of Ramakrishna. He was the great M who wrote the Gospel of Ramakrishna, I believe. Anyway, this blissful devotee once asked Master as a young man, you love to go often into the silence, he said. But have you developed Anubhava, love for God? Don't mistake the technique of meditation for the goal of meditation. It is the goal. Action is the process. But the goal is to transcend that. I think I read once in the transcriptions of um, the Patanjali lectures that Yogananda did, he made the incredible statement, and I still to this day pray and hope that it was a it was a typo, you know, it's sort of like the monk coming out of the cellar saying, they made a mistake, it's not celibate, it's celebrate. <laughs> they left out the R. <laughs> well, in any, in any case, he made the statement that until you can meditate for one hour without a ripple of thought, you're only just beginning. That's a pretty discouraging thought. I'm pretty sure the typo is, I think it was a minute. <laughs> At least that's where I'm going, striving for a minute. But you see, it's much more than that because, okay, so there are, you know, there are those who claim that, um, that Master diluted the Kriya technique. There are those who claim that he taught it one way when he first came and it's been changed by other people since then. And Lahiri emphasized Kechari Mudra, wonderful. So what is right? You see, it's not about the correctness of the technique. We don't go around collecting techniques, or some people do, as if collecting um, hood ornaments or something, going to classes and lectures, and now I've got this, and now I've got that. It's much deeper than that. It's generic, at least as I have come to understand it, for the simple fact that there is only one way out, the way we came in. And that, as Jyotish put it so wonderfully, beautifully, like last night's Kriya initiation for the third and fourth initiations, and as Master speaks of in that chapter 26, Kriya is the, psych is the scientific approach through psychophysiological technique by which we can disjoin, to partly quote the uh, Yoga Sutras, the inhalation from the exhalation, and thereby experience consciousness, reality, without dependency and the attachment to the body and the senses for self-identity. And thus it can accelerate our spiritual path. But the essence of it is to achieve that breathlessness, which in truth all pranayama does, and yeah, at least it's, it's the purpose of all pranayama, but the Kriya technique works in the spine. But I said earlier the Kriya is designed, the Kriya Yoga truly is 
not just a technique. In fact, it's a bundle of techniques, energization, om, ong sa, kriya, the higher kriyas, and so forth. But it's much more than that. It's a complete way of life. And that's, as we have heard continuously throughout the week, is what Swami Kriyananda is one of the great gifts that he has given to us. I remember when I, as many of you know, I before coming to Ananda, before discovering this path and Swamiji and Ananda, I had went to India, traveled overland by car, explored the length and breadth of India from her villages and her cities to her mountains and plains and hill stations, drove 26,000 miles and came home like Dorothy and Toto, empty-handed. I remember this was in the days when airplanes could fly empty. Somewhere over the Middle East, flying back from Delhi, which, by the way, I went through customs in Seattle, little knowing I'd end up spending much of my adult life there, and then to San Francisco. But I remember in the darkness somewhere, sprawled out over many seats, realizing that basically it seemed like I had failed. I was a meditator and trying it on my own. And what arose in my heart was something that I couldn't articulate even then, which I was open to the influence of others. And I dreamt, and I've never said this to anyone, I dreamt at that time that I would be in service of a great man. I couldn't yet articulate because the institution of gurudom, as you see it in India traditionally, did not, I confess, attract me at all the guru scene at the ashrams and so forth, this kind of thing. But all I could come to in my dream was the service of a great man. And being who I was and the life I had led in those few short years, which included a lot of backpacking and climbing mountains in Europe and the Himalayas and in California, which I greatly loved, I had this thought, okay, then I'll live somewhere near Lake Tahoe. And so when I landed, little did I know within days I'd meet Padma, my future wife, that I'd read autobiography of a yogi and very soon would move here. And my first people I met here were Jyotish and Devi. And so the rest, as they say, was history. But when I came, I was on fire with wanting Kriya, of course. But the first thing that happened, because huh, there had been a fire here, as I like to say, there were no jobs and fewer homes. <laughs> and so we had to live in Nevada City. And so the first thing that we did, I remember with Seva, Padma, Swami and I, perhaps Yotish, I don't know, he may have been off somewhere, marching. I mean, literally, Swami was marching up and down the streets of Nevada City looking for businesses to buy. I mean, we were broke. We had no income. Padma and I started our little accounting practice and we helped Arjuna and Shivani with their fledgling Ananda construction. They were our first client, construction company. Kriya in action. Boy, we didn't know. I remember storming up and down those streets. We looked at buying uh, a Good Morning, a health food store. We later started Earthsong, our own. We looked at, a, at an ice cream parlor, the soda saloon, and uh, <laughs> thought we could buy that perhaps. And uh, you know, it was a great adventure. It was a great adventure in living from one center in attunement with divine grace. At one point, we had 40 members there in town, 
and we were looking to buy a church. We did buy one, but this one, we, which we didn't, was St. George's. It was in Grass Valley, and we were sitting around the table with the realtors and all that. Swami was there. And, and I made some comment about, um, by the way, I was going to tell this sweater about this great uh, story about this great sweater I got. <laughs> You'll have to listen to Padma's talk if you didn't hear it yesterday. <laughs> but anyway, we were sitting there, and, and so I was making noises to the realtors, you know, thinking I'm really businesslike. And uh, basically, we were broke. And Swami just gave me the eye. And uh, he, was, he was not buy into that thought that we, you know, we were trying to, I was thinking we were negotiating on the price, right? And, uh, well, you know, money's a little tight right now, and uh, this sort of thing. But no, he just, he just wasn't going to do that. He said, yes, he listened, and yes, okay. They were justifying their price, of course, and so that was perfectly fine. Later on, when we were also, again, marching up and down the streets there, I heard him turn, I think, to Seva, and he said, speaking of me, he said, he's no businessman. <laughs> that was uh, step one in my education. <laughs> I've resigned myself to that fact. In, f in fact, as the years went on and I performed what was needed at that time to apply my skills to the growth here, but it was a puzzle to me. I was nonplussed. I came here to find God. I came here to meditate. And he was marching us around time, buying businesses and doing inventories all the time and all this accounting thing. I thought I had walked away from that. Well, it wasn't the time. I knew from my birth that that time would come. I, as a child, I used to, I, I don't know where this came from, but we all know, I would give speeches in my head. I was just a stupid little kid, and, and, and my father would trot me out as a service clubs to give talks, and you know, I just don't know where any of that really came from. And then, then life took over, and that thought all went away. And, but somehow I knew it was there, and Swami acknowledged that at one point. When we were in Rome, we were sitting having some coffee, and, and I said, Swamiji, I think, I think my time doing what I was doing here at the community is, is <clears throat> over. And I didn't want that. I would rather have had him ask me to move on. And so it was a great spiritual blow to me to have to have, because I know the spiritual principle, I know the path, at least to that extent, to ask for guidance and be directed. That was the tradition out of which I had grown, the Catholic tradition of complete obedience. But in this case, it had to come, as Jaya was saying, from within. Jyotish quoted Swami Pranabhananda, I can never say the poor fellow's name, Pranabhananda, a great disciple of Lahiri Mahasaya, in fact, a liberated soul, Master said, in saying that Kriya Yoga is the greatest gift to mankind for salvation through self-effort. And as Jaya so well put it, Dwapara Yuga is an age of self-effort, but in attunement with grace. One of the characteristics of this age and this path, and you see it perhaps not quite so much in what we know of Babaji, which is so little, but we certainly see it even in Lahiri and Sri Yukteswar, very much in Master and completely in Swamiji, which is the aspect of this new dispensation 
which is the path to self-realization, is a path of friendship. God no longer is king and ruler and we mere subjects, but we are friends. One of the most touching scenes in the life of Jesus is when he remarked to his disciples at the Last Supper in washing their feet that they were not servants but his friends. And this is what Swamiji, whether he was arm wrestling uh, the men, I remember when he got the very first computer, Padma mentioned yesterday about the, uh, um, what do you call it, self-publishing or something anyway. Um, he got an Apple II Plus and uh, it had two disk drives, five and a half inch floppies. It was really hot stuff. He had it in the basement there at his, his house, his little apartment, the studio now, but that's where he lived at the time. And he'd invite the guys over to play Pong. <laughs> he beat the pants off all of us. I mean, nobody could concentrate like that guy. <laughs> Arm wrestling, foot wrestling, whatever. You know, he was much older than us, or so it seemed to us. And, and uh, he could beat us all. At one point before the hermitage was built, and I recall him describing the levels of the gardens, and, you know, I, or coming here in the very beginning, oh, how beautiful it is. And I think, oh, really? Red dirt, teepees, buses, and, you know, I, I sort of knew what he meant, Anubhava. But nonetheless, it wasn't that obvious. And so he described the crystal hermitage and what it could be. But in the meantime, he built a, an above-ground pool. So we'd have these goofy pool parties. But he'd have people get on his shoulders, and we'd have these battles in the pool. And He was our friend, and he could live as we did. He, uh, we were all into really tasteless, nutritional food, you know, heavy, and that the bread weighed five pounds. And, and he'd bring out his shortbread, and <laughs> we were into herb tea, celestial seasonings was red hot back then, and, and he'd have his Earl Grey, and God forbid how shocking he'd have coffee, you know. He taught us many things, to relax into who we are, as Jaya said, this is a, this is a time for us to take action, self-acceptance. And so we've been blessed by a very great path. But it is for those who have emphasized too strongly their meditation, it becomes a self-definition and a source of pride. We have a great work to do because Swamiji was given a great work to do and we are his children and our guru, in a sense, our grandfather. He has taught us each many, many individual lessons. I, like Jaya, used to write him reports from my particular desk, which was more financially oriented, and of course uh, I had nothing but complaints about that. <laughs> I, rem I remember one time we were just trying to finish these buildings. They sat there sort of unfinished for more years than they probably should have, but we'd have Sunday service there and there'd be no sheetrock and the truck would come across there with the food and everybody, you know, <laughs> here comes Shakti or whatever that truck was called. With, with our lunch, you know. But uh, finally, Padma and I had uh, what I suppose was the courage. I think back and I just laugh how silly we were. $50,000 bank loan to uh, finish the building so we could occupy it. And so right away, Swami said, well, 
can't we borrow for this and for that to other things, some housing and so forth? I think Nitai was involved in the Pravers and so forth. And, you know, okay. And so we had took on this loan and we really want to be respectable, right, and pay our debts and so forth. And so Swami said, well, the CC was starting. They had moved down from Como and don't worry, the, the Europeans will have to build it there. And I remember Joe Tish walked into my office one day, big grin on his face, and he said, Swami called. He wants us to find the loans to buy a refugio. And I thought, oh. <laughs> I was not a happy camper that day. But, you know, it all worked out. Just as he expanded our sense of sort of our geographical sense of space. I mean, imagine becoming infinite. Like, why not? And I think of people who have a tendency to over-possess things. I, I think, well, they're... They're looking for infinity in, in their own way, or people who want power, and they're looking for infinity in their own way. It's not going to work, but because we go within with it. One time he came up to me at the Crystal Hermitage, as he did to so many people, and I suppose after one too many complaining notes from me, he came up, walked by at some function or another, looked at me and said, well, it was Terry then, don't be negative. And then he stomped off. <laughs> so I've taken that as a sort of a mantra uh, in any case. Or another time he said, you're very responsible. <laughs> that was not a compliment in case you didn't get it. <laughs> I love it how Patanjali, who is really above it all for the most part in the Yoga Sutras, comes down to earth at one point and he says, one of the obstacles to the spiritual path is missing the point. <laughs> how many times do we miss the point? It just seems endless, but with what grace we have been given and what a great soul. I have often said also, you know, Jaya mentioned Swami saying to us that Master is the avatar of this age, Vapara. I don't have any doubt in that, but it doesn't mean anything to me. There are those who might say, Paramahansa Yogananda was not an avatar. It doesn't matter to me. Master said to Swami that death will be the last sacrifice before you find God. Well, what does that mean? I don't know. It doesn't matter because it's not about great gurus. It's about great disciples. And Swamiji was a great disciple. He wore his life transparently. So many times he challenged us together in various things, but individually many, many times he challenged us with how he would serve and work in the world. I, somebody mentioned his fast driving, and I always had a particular connection with him in that. For many years he drove himself, and I remember going to town with him when he sometimes he'd have something to say to us, he would invite us to go on an errand. So um, more than once, but I remember this one particular instance where we jumped in the car and went to town and had a coffee and something. And so we chatted, and I started to say something again, and I, the whining was beginning. And I, I said, started with the word, frankly. <laughs> he said, stop right there. <laughs> he gave me a 10-minute talk on never start a sentence with, frankly. <laughs> But on trips like that, he, he would just go up and down that canyon over there and 
honestly would pass on the curve. And, you know, I, I'm no, I used to have sports cars when I was younger and go on rallies and races. So it wasn't like any, not exactly on whatever. And so, and yet, and what it was is, is he was just so relaxed. You know, it's not an example. Don't emulate this, but, <laughs> but he was just so in his center, which is where Kriya brings us. And it was like, you know, he was just so relaxed. And so the only way you could respond to this, that particular story was to relax. You know, I've actually found it great fun. But another time, he used to love to stop at not the coffee tree, but something other tree that isn't there. Nut tree. Ah, thank you. And he always loved to stop there because we had many trips to the Bay Area with the centers there. And so sometimes we'd caravan because there were more of us who had to go and do what we had to do. And so I was following him, Padma and I were following him, and I was bound and determined to keep up with the old buster, and uh, zigzagging down I-80, and I managed to do it. He pulls into the parking lot of the nut tree and jumps out, and I jump out, and I said, I kept up with you, sir. He just laughed, okay. <laughs> to me, it meant a lot. And I don't mean in terms of cars. <laughs> it was my statement, so to speak, or affirmation to keep up with him in whatever way I could, and that was the way I could that day, keep up with him. So yes, the path is challenging, and ego transcendence is something we all need to work on. But it comes, you know, whereas Kali Yuga would have emphasized that by self-flagellation in its various and sundry forms, rejecting the world, ours is such a life-affirming path. It is perfect for this age. But we must go within, in that contact with that state of Anubhava, the blissful presence of God, which we achieve through silence. We should never leave our meditation without even a moment in the presence of God as silence. Because it's in that stillness, the, so, uh, uh, the pacification, the neutralization, of those vortices of mental restlessness that we achieve the silence of God's presence into which, like a tsunami, can come that bliss. When ecstasy comes, Master said to Swamiji, all else goes. This is our path, and I know we are very grateful. So I realize that uh, we've had 23 speakers before me So if I repeat some things or tell stories that you've heard, uh, just take them deeper within. <laughs> My mother years ago when she was alive told me this story about uh, an incident that happened at the church that she attended regularly. Um, this one particular morning for Sunday service, the pastor of the church uh, came in and came from the back of the church in his robes, walking up the center aisle uh, towards the front of the church. And my mother noticed that he had this box under his arm. And what she perceived, it looked like just a cardboard shoebox. And so the pastor continued. When he came to the altar, he put this box on the altar, and he took the lid off and put the lid beside it. And then he just on, went on with his regular Sunday service. He didn't pay any attention to it, didn't refer to it. And at the end, he carefully put the lid on the box, 
put under his arm, walked through the center aisle, out into the foyer. And of course, everyone was, what was that? Because um, he hadn't mentioned a word about it or, as I said, referred to it. And so when enough people had collected out in the foyer where he was greeting people, he said, you know, unfortunately, this is how many people relate to God. Sunday service, they bring him in, they take the lid off the box so he can come out and be with us. But once service is over, back in the box, back to usual. And it was, my mother was really impressed with it. I think everybody was really impressed with it. When you look at Swami Kriyananda's life, of course, it's the opposite of that. It's not only that he brought God into his life, he brought God into everyone's life. Whether he talked about God in a specific way, whether he mentioned this path, we've heard some stories this week where he would just walk into a shop, whether it be in America, Italy, or India, and something would happen. People would feel that touch. It wasn't even what he discussed with them or that he bought anything from them. It was always just more the feeling that he was their divine friend. Now, for a lot of those people, they didn't relate to the divine part of that friendship consciously, but their souls were touched by that divine friendship. And, you know, it's sort of an interesting topic, uh, that Kriya Yoga in action, because Kriya Yoga, as uh, Riemann just said, is action. It is as if you can really have Kriya Yoga in action. It is. What we're really talking about, how do we really open up to the experience where there's no moment in every day, there's no moment ever left without that divine experience. Swami really lived that. Uh, you know, when you look at all the books that you wrote, over 150, most of those have a reference to Kriya Yoga. There's a good number of them that don't specifically, but many, many do. Everything from the essence of the Bhagavad Gita, which in reality is a, a real scripture of Kriya Yoga, when you really dive deep into what he expressed there. But all of his books really expressed whether overtly what Kriya Yoga was or covertly, that he had it hidden, coded in how to be happy, you know, the secrets of prosperity. Kriya Yoga was always there, seeping into the fabric, seeping into the body of what he was sharing with us. You know, he also was an amazing example that he just lived comfortably, and I don't mean in the sense that most people think of comfortably as being passive, but comfortably with a high level of energy, always in that highest divine experience. When one time we were in Italy, in southern Italy with Swami in Sorrento, and it was for a wedding of an Ananda couple. And Swami was staying with the parents of the bride. And he had a number of us over just to have a casual evening of talking. And that was going on, and it was nice just sharing that way. And then Swami graciously got up and graciously excused himself. And, you know, the usual thought is, well, he's off to the bathroom and he'll be back in a few minutes. Well, minutes went by, more minutes went by, and 45 minutes later, 
he reappeared in the living room. And someone said, are you unwell, sir? And his response was very, just soft, very e at ease. He said, no, I just went to meditate and do my kriyas because tomorrow we have to head off very early to drive from Sorrento up to Como, where the center was at that time before we got in on to Sisi. And it was such a direct line to my soul that he was saying, whatever circumstances happen, feel in yourself what really is important, not pushing away other people. And he didn't do it that way. He wasn't saying, I'm going to go to meditate, you better too. It was just that softness. It was an invitation to really see how do you live in this world when the pressures, the social niceties are what people want you to conform to without butting up against them. He always created a flow that allowed the right things to happen. Devarshi, uh, last evening in the Korean Initiation for First Korea, was talking about this thing that we say to Korea bonds that you should wait three hours after a meal before practicing the technique of Kriya Yoga. Well, there's always this dilemma that happens, I think, to all of us, many times perhaps in this life, that you've had a busy day, and for a lot of us, it's a busy day with Swami. And, you know, we've done a lot of things where I remember in Assisi itself, when Parvati and I were living over there, that uh, there were a number of concerts performed of Swami's music in the town of Assisi itself. And this one time, because concerts and evening events were much later, I think the concert started at 9 o'clock in Assisi. And afterwards, we went out to eat. So it was about 11 o'clock, or a little past 11 o'clock in the evening. And nobody had the time to do their Kriyas that afternoon. And we're instructed for those that aren't Kriya bonds to uh, do your practice of Kriya, the technique, twice a day. And so, because either the choir who were busy rehearsing for the event, or a lot of us that were helping with setting up and arranging all this, here we were eating. And it wasn't just we were snacking at 11 o'clock. This was dinner. And we were all there enjoying Swami's company and his comments on how wonderful it was to be in the setting to hear this music, many pieces from the oratorio, Christ Lives. And at one point he just said, I could hear him just softly, I wasn't at his table, I could hear him say softly, we should probably go now because we need to do our Kriyas at home. Well, the three hours didn't come into effect that night because there's no way we were all going to wait till three o'clock in the morning to do our kriyas and then get up three or four hours later to do them again and i'd heard him say before when the choice is there between waiting that three hours or making sure you do your kriyas just do your kriyas again it was a point that he wasn't confined by the outward expression he always respected that but made it move towards what was really important was being with God on deeper and deeper levels. I remember hearing him say at one of the Kriyabon retreats years ago in the 1990s, we used to have Kriyabon retreats before we got busy with a lot of other activities. But it was just focused on Kriya, and he was leading them. And at one point in answering some questions, because he did that frequently, had a question and answer period, that um, 
someone was just commenting on how difficult their practice of Kriya was. And sort of like when Durga was saying that at one point she went to talk to Swami about how difficult meditation was for her, but Swami responded, I'm having difficulty too, Durga, with my meditation. Well, in this case, this is in front of Kriya Bonds. He said, and Padma, I think, uh, shared just briefly yesterday about this. He said for a year and a half, not only did he just dislike Kriya, the practice of it, he said he intensely disliked the practice of Kriya. I think when I heard that live, it was, well, for all of us, I think we sort of went, huh? And then we went, <laughs> because we, we saw in him that he was living the teachings. He wasn't on some pedestal removed from any of us. He was really there in that experience wanting to say, these things will happen. Just because we're dedicating ourselves, that we've embraced the path that Master gave us, that we're Kriya bonds now, uh, even for those of us that teach, we're teaching these things, doesn't mean that we're not going to face that karma that seems like it's just going to clobber us and roll us over. His life, Kriya in action, was always saying, we always have a choice in each moment and each situation. It's not about achieving that goal that's distant, that's saying I'm one with God. He always said, keep that there, but remember the moment that you're living and create the flow with God and Master that allows you to take those steps right before you. And when I've looked at my own life with that, it's always that which works. When I look too far in the distance, there is that anxiety. When I look at a project that has to have that outcome, and remember, as we've heard all week, Swami was constantly in projects with us. It wasn't as if we finished a project and we got some chance to breathe. It was, let's move on, let's move on, let's do this, let's create this for others. And so, but he always made this point, which Riemann touched on a little bit, about being relaxed. And a number of times, a lot of us had times with him where we were just one-to-one. -one. I remember one time, um, in Denver, Colorado. He and I had gone alone to the first of the New Age shows that was happening, and he was one of the featured speakers at the um, breakfast banquet at this uh, three-day event. And it was just he and I, so that we spent a lot of time uh, just together, one-on-one. -on -one. And this thought, this quirky thought came into my mind the first morning when I went down to his room in this place that we were staying. Um, I thought, I wonder if he's at all different when he's in this situation, just with me, than when I've seen him in other situations with other people. You know, because that comes. Is there even a hint of Swami putting on another face? And it was odd, because in my heart of hearts, I knew, but this just, it was like a little situation that Master or Divine Mother had put into my mind that could have gone into a negative doubt. And so I quickly saw it as, no, it is a doubt. I can't squelch the doubt in and of itself, 
but I can shift the energy in that doubt and make it a constructive doubt. That's not always easy to do, because the moment you have negativity and a doubt, it starts to have a fair amount of momentum from the get-go. But it was, in a sense, a little bit of touch of grace, and I was able to just say, let me just observe. Let me just see Swami who he is in these various personal ways that I'm relating to him. And it was even more of what he was with the other times that I've seen him. He was natural. He was comfortable. I remember I was supposed to get him and take him to breakfast one morning, and I had a key to his room, and he wasn't responding to the knock, so I thought he's probably getting ready in the bathroom or something and not hearing it. So I unlocked it, came in, and he was sitting at the kitchen table. This was a little suite that he was in. And he had this little portable uh, altar on the kitchen table. And he was just facing that in the ki- on the kitchen uh, table chair, the, the chair that went with the table. And it was just so simple. He, he had just really made his life so that things really were there always as the natural expression. Again, he was never passive in that. It wasn't that natural was synonymous or had any relationship to passivity. But he was relaxed. I remember years ago when I first um, came to Ananda, I had purchased this book. I can't remember the title of it now. This is back in the 1970s. I think it was called something like Science Studies Yoga. And they did this study, one of the studies that was recorded in the book, about people going through a set of asanas, so a set of yoga postures. And at the end, then they had them lie down in savasana for deep relaxation. In this case, they had them hooked up uh, to monitor so they could read their vital signs, whether it was the respiratory rate, the cardiovascular rate, all those kind of things. And then they compared the results uh, of those people with uh, another group, uh, a blind study group thing. But what they found was that an interesting thing that they weren't really looking to find, that in the relaxation state, that when people start to fall asleep, they diminish their state of relaxation. Those that were continuing on with a focused energy continue having that deeper level of relaxation. So it points to that relaxation to be really effective cannot be passive, is what that study was indicating. Swami was always that way. Kriya Yoga for him was never passive, either in the technique or in action. He was always alive with it. And he always was helping each one of us to really be sure we were moving in that direction. I remember one time, this was, again, I think it was, I don't know if it was a Kriyabhan retreat, but he had uh, a lot of us over to Crystal Hermitage in the Dome. And we were talking about Kriya, the technique, and asking him questions and reviewing things. And at one point, uh, I think it had to do with Mahamudra, which for those that aren't Kriyabhans is a technique that's part of the Kriya practice. Um, And someone was going on about that people had to do it this way, that it was really important. And, And I remember making comments saying, well, maybe we get to that point, but we need to be who we are moving in the right direction. And Swami afterwards, after that 
group session had ended, asked me to come down into his apartment. And I thought, like a lot of us, oh no, what did I do? <laughs> but he just sweetly, he, he said, I just want to talk about something. And you happen to be someone that I thought of in this context. He said, you know, we need to remember Lahiri's emphasis in Korea, that it's not just about doing things, it's giving yourself with attunement and devotion to the experience. And he said, if you can continuously be one of the people that shares that. And so I've taken, not so much as a mission, but when I either teach Mahamudra, this technique, which is a physical stretch on one hand, or I've reviewed people doing it, I've always remember Swami saying that because it came from the point of that attunement, that dedication with the energy in that mudra comes from the relaxation of being in that experience already. And that's what he was really saying. And so I've always encouraged people to be in the experience and let your devotion be the leading edge of doing Mahamudra rather than trying to find that devotion. And so for all of us, we get the opportunities being around Swami where we can tune into him saying something, him writing something, him writing a piece of music. If, as someone said early in the week, the difference between hearing and listening. Swami's always offering us to hear, but more importantly, he's offering us to listen. And one way of understanding listening is to be in the experience, center everywhere, circumference nowhere. We are that experience. We're not waiting for it to happen. And Swami's whole life was constantly there as a sweet but powerful reminder in that way. You know, there's a wonderful quote in the chapter in the Autobiography of Yogi of years in my master's hermitage. And it's a quote from Swami Sri Yukteswar. And it's very simple. He says, the darkness of Maya is silently approaching. Let us hie homeward within. And then this is what, as dust would settle in on the day at the ashram in India with Swami Sri Yukteswar and disciples, he would say this to remind them of their need to practice Kriya. Swami, whether he said that in words to us, was constantly offering that up as our true experience. Not Kriya just as a technique, but Kriya as that connection with our own divinity. You know, we're going to end with a, a chant of Swami's. Uh, in English, it's, um, How shall I love thee? And it was originally written in Italian when Swami and a number of people went over to Italy in the uh, 1980s. Um, but then he translated it, and more in recent years, it's become much more of a chant that we sing. But as we sing it together, feel not only the deep meaning, because if you look at the meaning of these words, they are deep. How shall I love thee, Lord, with every breath I breathe? How shall I seek thee, Lord, my God, with every breath I breathe? How shall I serve thee, Lord, my God, with every breath I breathe? How shall I worship thee 
Lord my God, with every breath I breathe. And then the second, the refrain, second refrain, the second part is, just as a fire may burn a whole forest, burn to the root my desires. So what Swami's saying here that often people don't see is that he's combining devotion with the breath, which is Kriya. How shall I love thee, Lord, my God, with every breath I breathe? Breathe with Kriya, be alive in Master, be alive in Divine Mother, and let us sing this together, feeling Swami's presence. How shall I love thee, Lord my God, with every breath I breathe? How shall I love thee, Lord my God, with every breath I breathe? Just as a fire may burn a whole forest, burn to the root my desires. Just as a fire may burn a whole forest, burn to the root my desires. How shall I seek the Lord my God with every breath I breathe? How shall I seek the Lord my God with every breath I breathe? Just as a fire may burn a whole forest, burn to the root my desires. Just as a fire may burn a whole forest, burn to the root my desires. How shall I serve Lord my God, with every breath I breathe? How shall I serve Lord my God, with every breath I breathe? Just as a fire may burn a whole forest, burn to the my desires, just as a fire may burn a whole forest, burn to the root my desires. How shall I worship the Lord my God with every breath I breathe? How shall I worship the Lord my God with every breath I breathe? Just as a fire may burn a whole my desires, just as a fire may burn a whole forest, burn to the root my desires, just as a fire may burn a whole forest, burn to the root my desires, just as a fire may burn a whole forest, burn to the root my desires. Every breath I breathe, how shall I serve the Lord my God with every breath I breathe? How shall I worship the Lord my God?